Welcome to Horses for Future. Horse people can make a difference in the climate change crisis. Together, we're learning how. My name is Alexandra Kurland. I'm the author of The Click That Teaches, a step-by-step guide in pictures and many other books and DVDs on clicker training. But this is not a podcast about training horses. Instead, we're learning how horse people can make a positive difference for the environment. The idea is a simple one. Our horses need pasture, so horse people have land. We need healthy pastures for our horses. Becoming better stewards of the land is a winning combination. It's good for our horses, good for us, and good for the planet. If you've been listening to this podcast, you know that I've been looking at the work of Dr. Doug Tallamy. Dr. Tallamy is an entomologist who has become alarmed by the decline in biodiversity that's caused by climate change and habitat loss. He's launched, in his words, a grassroots call to action to restore biodiversity and ecosystem function by planting native plants and creating new ecological networks. Dr. Tallamy isn't looking at public lands. Instead, he's calling on private landowners to join what he calls the largest cooperative conservation project ever conceived or attempted. The goal is 20 million acres of native plantings in the U.S. In all the things that I've been looking at in terms of climate change, I think I find Dr. Tallamy's work to be the most hopeful. So I want to learn more about how horse people can be part of the change that he's advocating for. How can we have our cake and eat it too? Or to put it another way, how do we develop healthy pastures for our horses, while at the same time, how can we promote healthy habitats for the local wildlife? Does one conflict with the other, or can you have both? There is no one-size-fits-all answer to this question. I've been visiting with friends from around the planet So far, we've been to Australia and to Scotland, but this week I'm staying a little closer to home. I'm visiting with Jane Jackson. Jane is one of my Click That Teaches coaches. Many of you may know her already through her Bookends Farm blog. She runs a training facility in northern Vermont, but it isn't training that we're going to be talking about. Instead, I want to hear about the really remarkable way in which she's managing her pastures. And I'll just give you a sneak preview of what she's been able to accomplish. She has six horses, and one of her horses has Cushing's and is insulin resistant. It's an older pony, and that pony can go out on grass with her other horses without foundry. That's what I want to learn about. So I invited Coralie Palmer to join us for an afternoon's conversation with Jane. Coralie is a director of the Indiana Wildlife Federation, and she's on the Council of the Indiana Native Plant Society. She's been helping me to introduce us all to Dr. Tellamy's work. So on a cold February day, the three of us got together via Zoom for an afternoon's conversation. I was intending to record a quick introduction for Jane, but we just started talking. And it really didn't seem like a good idea to interrupt the flow. So we're just going to jump in with the start of what was a truly great conversation. Enjoy. Well, the the snow is just gorgeous right now. Yes, I just went out and gave everybody their... Well, actually, they don't need hay at noon right now, but I gave them their water and I stupidly, I don't know why I continue to do this, you know, did not put all three latches on the door when I went out to, you know, so Percy ran right to the door, whipped it open, and I had opened the aisle and door because the sun was coming in and both cats came right over and sat in the sun and I said, okay, I'll leave the so Percy out through the stall, down the aisle, and whoopee, ran around in the snow having a wonderful time. <laughs> so he's that quick at noticing that you oh, have yes. not been 
and he can, yeah and so he really watches he watches and he can undo it just like that you know his nose goes wow wow and you know and then wow. he rips open the door and out he goes so and i can stop him you know if i say whoa he'll stop yeah but sometimes he has so much fun but i just say no and they you know <laughs> okay yeah. honestly i'd forgotten the aisle aisle door was open if i'd remembered that i might not have risked it because you know he likes to just go play in the aisle but anyway well, let me uh, introduce you to Coralie. Hi, Coralie. Uh, so I invited Coralie to, to join us because she's been sharing the, uh, Dr. Tallamy's work and, and knows a lot more about it than I do. And I thought she might have some interesting questions to sort of nudge the conversation <laughs> I I along. Them. Though, given the list you sent, I feel like a kid in a candy <laughs> store. Absolute kid in a candy store. So let's just jump right in. Because you know the drill. You know, you've done the... Equosity podcast, and this okay. is the same yeah. thing. You know, we just we just have a, a free conversation, for all. a free for all, and it takes us wherever it takes us. And when we get to the point where you have to go take care of critters, we'll stop. And because given this list, I think we could talk for okay. days. And and given the pictures you sent, boy, should you be proud of what you've been doing up there? Yeah, I, I just it took a while, but they are so happy. They are so happy, and that's. You know, <laughs> and that's that's yeah. why we do it. Yeah, yeah, and the lamb looks happy. Exactly. I I wish I had. I mean, I know I do. I, it would have taken me a while to find the pictures of what it looked like when we moved here. Because, well, we can talk about it. I think we already are. Right. Exactly. <laughs> I have a feeling we've already started. So let's let's just let's just go. So so that actually was where I wanted to start, which was because you you. you you sent me this wonderful list that I've just been drooling over of things that you want to talk about, like transitioning 150-ish acres from scrub to productive grassland, and then the appearance of dung beetles. And I know, because I read one of your blog posts about the dung beetles, and was just enchanted by that. And then uh, adapting rotational grazing to the equines who you are interacting with, which is different from livestock that just stay out there and and then you've got the time and patience to wait for organic approaches to work i think that's really there's a lot in there and then the fact that you've got you don't just have easy keepers who can go out and eat grass you've got horses with, with metabolic issues including cushing's horses and and older horses so so all of that gets juggled in and and yet you are able to put them out on pasture that I know many people would be going oh, you can't put put horses out on that kind of grass and and so the fact that we can have it all you know we can have our cake and eat it too yeah. that we can have beautiful pastures lush pastures that aren't killing our horses and I think that's so important and that you can have the biodiversity and then I love this training your animals to eat weeds you know, that definitely needs to be explored. Okay, okay. And then fencing choices and the silver pasture, that's uh, getting getting your land designated as silver pasture for uh, tax um, advantages. That's, I think, going to make a lot of people's ears go forward because that's huge. I've got so, one so, question and one correction. My correction okay. is the land numbers... I actually, and I'll mention this later too, if you want me to, there's this wonderful site, Daft Logic. <laughs> Isn't that a wonderful name? Uh, yes. That you can pull up Google Maps and yes. pinpoint to calculate acreage. And it's uh -huh. really cool. You just put a, a dot on each corner of your pasture and it tells you how big it is. So it's wow! It's really cool, and I had done that for the horse pasture before. But after telling you it was 150 acres, I went back and did it with the the rest of the land, and I way overestimated, which is just interesting to see what maps make you think and do. And it's really yes, yes. 50 acres of cleared, 55 acres of cleared land, and um, another 32 that still has some trees on it. And then yeah. 150 of is silver pasture right now. 
So, wow, um, excellent. So that, that, and that gives me an idea because we have 34 acres. Okay. And that's mixed. So that's, so I have sort of a sense because I've walked, obviously I've walked the property. Um, so I have a sense of that 34 acres is actually quite a lot of land. Yeah. So 50, and that's, that's the total for us. That's woods and pasture and so on. So 50 plus acres of pasture in New England, in New England, in, in Northern Vermont. Yeah. Because we're not talking Iowa here. So we're talking northern Vermont. And to have 55 acres of cleared land is is impressive. Of cleared pasture is, is really impressive. That uh, website's going to be really useful because as, as people are developing their homegrown national parks, that, you know, to know, to know, because I put my uh, house on Dr. Tallamy's map and, you know, it's like, how many acres? It's like, it's 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 not even an acre you know it's a house with a so so i don't know how much yeah land actually so that will be really useful to have that and and that's going to be a good contribution to the whole thing so um and i saw Coralie was was jotting that down she was making notes as we as we went which is really good that's really useful i'm, I'm exactly the same as you with my land alex i'm like i don't actually know how much of it I've planted up so to be able to do that will be so useful thank it's you. fun yeah. and, and I don't know you know on the 34 acres that I have we have just a tiny portion that's been designated and for the paddocks the pastures that my horses use but it would be interesting to know how much pasture I actually have for them Oh, in the overall thing. So that alone is useful. But let's let's start at the beginning. So you you silly person, you bought or or smart person, depending upon how you look at it. It was in the middle of winter when it's so cold, it's like, what were we thinking? And in the summer when it's so beautiful, it's like, what why does everybody not do this? And and in the middle of a pandemic when it's nice to be away from people, mm -hmm. it's oh I think I think I think we chose well, but you bought acreage in northern Vermont. So what what was the what was your plan for the land? Why did you want to move there? And what was the land like when you moved there? What's the starting point? Okay, so the starting point is before we lived here, we had fifty five acres. Um, and right. when I say we, my husband and I. He is a livestock farmer, so he raises beef and sheep, and I am the horse person. Okay. So he was, not long after we had lived on our former farm on 55 acres, he was starting to, you know, go all over the neighborhood, finding other pieces of land that he could put animals on because he was always wanting more and needed more land, and it was a nightmare of trucking cows to pasture in the spring and turning them out and then we'd have to put them all back on the trailer bring them home in the fall for winter and we just needed more land for what he wanted to do for the size of an operation that he wanted so we looked for a very long time to try to find land and what it comes down to is this is where we could afford this much land you know there are plenty yes. of beautiful places to farm in vermont river bottom farm, hill farms, whatever you want, but they are a pretty penny. So by going to less than 30 miles from the Canadian border <laughs> and finding what amounted to scrubland that had formerly been ag land and my husband's vision that we, we, the royal we, he could turn it into something, <laughs> that's what brought us here. So yeah. That's how we ended up in the Northeast Kingdom of Vermont. And we're on a ridge line. Next ridge line over has a wind farm on it. So we are up, we are exposed, we are cold. <laughs> but yeah, in the middle of the summer, there's nowhere I'd rather be. So, yeah. and the summers last about a week. So when we think about Vermont, you know, when I think about Vermont, I think about the beautiful mountains. And so that would be of yeah. reasonable picture. And I think about cold in the winter. Yes. 
Yes. Yes. And I actually, I did a little bit of research for anybody who's interested. We are in hardiness zone 3B or 4A. Our low temperatures are, are 25 to 35 below. Yeah. Average first frost is September 11th to the 20th. Average last frost is June 1st to 10th. So we have a very short growing season. You do. We're designated as a humid, continental, mild summer, wet all year. Average yearly prep, uh, precipitation is 45 inches. Heat zone days, it's rarely over 86 here. Those were the little sort of details I could find about specific yeah. where we yeah. live to give people an idea of what the climate is, what the land is. That paints a good picture because I've talked now, I recently talked to someone who's in very Mediterranean type climate in Australia. Talked to Amanda Martin, who's in wet, boggy Scotland. Wow. Uh, so very, you know, lots of very different climates, vegetation zones. And I think that's one of the things that makes this so interesting because there will be commonalities in terms of principles, but application is going to be very different because we're in different climates. Yep. Totally. Yeah. So when you say scrub, what kind of uh, bushes were, trees okay. were there? So, you know, a little more history on this property. It was dairy farms decades and decades ago. There were three little dairy farms on our property. And then more recently, it was, believe it or not, it was a potato farm. Good grief. That's a lot of potatoes. But the person that we bought it from, and I can't tell you how long he owned it, had basically done nothing with it. So it had grown up. It was ag land that nature had taken over. So there's a lot of willow um, in the wetter okay. spots, a lot of what locals call popple otherwise known as poplar or aspen, you know, those quick growing things, a lot of berry bushes, those things that come in fast when land is, <laughs> is left alone. And it was interesting, and I don't understand why. So where the house and barns sit is like a 10 acre field. And that was the only part that was truly open at that time. And there was no, there were no buildings on it but somebody local had been hanging it for horses. They'd been hanging it once a year, you know, cutting it in August, to my knowledge, never putting anything back on it. So it was basically Indian paintbrush and wild strawberries. You know, it was, it was pretty run out. And then some, for some reason or other from here south on the, along the road, it sort of gradually got more and more and more wooded. And I don't understand why it was so gradual. You would think that the whole thing would have grown up the same. So whether it was, you know, he, he continued to mow more for a while and then mowed less every year so that more and more came in, I don't know. But closest to the house was, yeah, just dense, brushy stuff. But even now, the part he hasn't cleared, there are 25, 30 foot trees that have come in, you know, big Again, they're quick growing trees. There aren't any big old maples or anything like that in there. And when he cleared it, he did it all by himself <laughs> with a chainsaw and a tractor. So there was no big power equipment that came in and did it. He did it little by little and kept going further and further south along the road on the flat part to get it opened up. With the goal to create pasture for the livestock. Yes. Yep. Yes. And how long have you been now on the property? We've been here six and a half years. Yeah, because I was I was trying to remember because you built you built your barn after I built yes. mine. Yeah. So because I remember those conversations that we yep. had about barn building. Yeah. And yeah. we actually owned it for five years before that. So he would come up, my husband Ed would come up you know, on the rare chance he had a few hours on a weekend, he'd drive up and attack a little piece with his chainsaw. And so he got started on it before we actually moved in. So that when we moved in, there was, um, there was somewhere to put animals, but it was, it was pretty rough still. So. But it really, it's not very much time. No. Given, no. The transformation uh, has been amazing. Yeah. Because yeah. the pictures you sent are just 
staggeringly beautiful. Yeah, and there were years, yeah. those first couple of years especially, I was close to, if not in tears, <laughs> halfway through the summer going, I'm out of grass. There is nothing left for the horses to eat. And when, you know, when are we going to see results from this? Because I'm feeding hay and it was, and, and to be clear that the amount using that little um, daft logic site, the amount the horses have is four and a half acres. That's all that yeah. uh, of what we have, the horses have four and a half acres. So that's what I was trying to feed them on. Um, and they were just tearing right through it in no time. And now I have more grass than I know what to do with. Um, they are just, as the pictures I sent you, they are up to their bellies. Kizzy disappears entirely. The 12 hand pony, she's just gone when she goes out there. She goes wading, you know, through this stuff. And that's early July. That's what it looks like early July now. So it finally did come. And the thing which, you know, whether it was time, coincidence, or whether the thing that really did it was what we put on, well, we, we limed it the first year. And I didn't see any significant difference after that. However, we put wood ash on several years later. So wood ash is a byproduct of the wood energy in this part of the world. There's a lot of wood energy power plants and all the ash is a byproduct. And so we used to be able to get it for free. Now you have to pay for it. But we put the year that we put wood ash on the next spring, it exploded. And I'm sure part of it was the fact that the horses had been here for a while and been putting manure on it and cleaning up the other things. But that really, that's when things started to explode and I had plenty of grass and, um, yeah, you know, trying to figure out how to handle all this stuff that my horses couldn't even eat. So, much, so. Yes. Yes. So, and it's still four and a half acres that, that they have, or did yeah. you expand it? So the nope. four and a half acres. Yeah. And that four and a half acres is divided into about 13 paddocks at the least. Wow. I won't say they're permanent paddocks. They're sort of semi-permanent paddocks. Um, but I, sometimes there's just so much grass and it's coming so fast that I will even divide it down smaller than that. And the theory is you should move animals every three to five days at the most. And you should not put them back onto land for at least 30 days after you've removed them. So by having 13 paddocks times three at the least, that gives me 39, did I do my math right there? It gives me more than 30 days before they end up back on a paddock that they have already grazed. So I cover my tracks that way. Um, so how, how big, roughly, would you say your paddocks are then, the individual ones? Well, it, it was think, funny. I was thinking I should go and measure one. I'm so bad at distances and stuff. I mean, I can do strides. If I, I am if too. I can do I am strides too. it was, I might be able to figure it out. But I, I honestly can't tell you. It's, let me put it this way. It's plenty big enough for them to take off and tear down the end of it and whoop around and come back. And they don't usually do that. They put their heads down and graze pretty quickly because that's what they're out there to do. So they don't feel like they're in some little postage stamp. No, and that's what, so initially the, the um, rotational grazing theory was mob stocking, where you put a lot of animals on a small area to force them to eat everything so that they ate the weeds and they don't pick and choose only the good bits and then they overgraze that and then you're left with nothing but weeds in your field because that's what's thriving. That has now changed. So the, the, what I'm hearing from the other side of the dining room table is move them across the land fast. So basically put them in, let them eat what they can and then move them to another area. And so Ed moves sheep every 12 to 24 hours in the middle of the summer. Wow. He will move them 
every night and every morning into a new paddock. But the paddocks are much bigger than they used to be 20 years ago when we were doing this. They've got plenty of room to eat. But so what happened when you mob stocked was, and they ate everything, was then you had bare naked ground, you know? So it was exposed to the sun, exposed to the wind, exposed to the rain, exposed to the snow when they came. Um, and you were, you know, the soil was being beaten by the elements. And now it's, it's better. And, you know, it was like, no, don't put them on too much land because then they'll just trample some of the feed. And now that trampling is seen as a good thing because trampling it is breaking the plants to get them to regenerate and grow again, but it's shading the soil underneath and the microbes and the little bugs and the critters and giving them plenty of cover to um, do what they need to do. But you're still, that trampling is still knocking the grasses over so that they'll start their regrowth process. So you're getting the, you're protecting all those lovely mycorrhizal right. fungi and, and keeping the biodiversity right. in the ground that we need. But that trampling keeps the, because that's one of the things that I've seen in my horse pastures that there's one section in particular that's fairly wet and the horses don't like the grass. They, they won't, um, they really won't touch it and they don't really go into it. So right. they don't knock it down. So that's where you have to yeah. teach them to eat weeds. <laughs> so how do you teach them to eat weeds? How many? Oh, wait a minute. Coralie has a question. I was just, no, sorry. I was just, how many horses do you have in that area, Jane? Oh, sorry. Yeah. I have six equines. Okay. okay. <laughs> so I have two horses and four ponies. Okay. Um, and they literally range from 12 hands to 16 one. And they're, you know, they're pretty much our stair steps going up. It's not all of one or all of the other. Okay. Um, and your ponies can be turned out alongside. That, yeah. Or... And that's, what's really cool. I have a 30 plus, <laughs> 30 plus yes. year old 12 hand IR Cushing's pony mare who gets turned out next to the 16 one hand wow. thoroughbred and, and they spend the same amount of time out uh, same on the same pasture. And she's not wearing, she's not wearing a grazing muzzle. She's not wearing, she won't leave one on. Right. So she's, so, I mean, this for a lot of people is going to be absolutely mind blowing because they, they twist themselves into knots trying to keep their IR ponies from getting a single blade of grass. And of course they got the pony to have to keep the thoroughbred company, <laughs> but then they can't put them out yeah. together. So, you know, that plan didn't work out and their life is made miserable because they have one horse that needs more pasture to keep any, any flesh on his bones at all. And the other horse that if he eats a blade of grass, it seems as though they're laminitic. And you're saying, you, you, you crazy making person <laughs> that you can turn, that you're, you're gonna just have people's heads spinning, that you can turn your aged Cushing's IR pony out with your thoroughbred and everybody is fine and they can have a quality of life. Well, and, and I have to put this disclaimer on, don't do what I do, <laughs> because I'm the right. only person who I know is getting away with this. And my when I first started doing it, my vet was wringing her hands and my hoof trimmer was wringing her hands and everybody's okay. And it's- yeah, it so We should all knock on wood at the right. moment. <laughs> right, exactly. And you know, yeah. the first year I was like, well, Am I lucky? And the second year, it was like, okay, I've been lucky two years in a row. And the more I go, the more I am seeing, you know, it's it's okay. And the critical piece of it is the the type of grass they're being turned onto. You know, they're not yes. being turned onto golf course lawn prime hay quality grass. They're being turned out onto overly mature local native grasses. And so I had a um, test done. I went on, a, I think it was the Safer Grass website that tells you 
you know, what to look for in your hay and your pasture and your values yeah. and all this. And I very carefully printed that off this morning and it's still sitting down in the printer. So I can't give you the numbers precisely, but I, not only do I have my hay tested and I don't, we don't do our own hay with all this land, believe it or not, we're still buying hay, but I did have the pasture tested and it came, the numbers were fine. And I had it tested in um, like the first week of August and the numbers came out exactly where they should have been to be safe for an IR Cushing's horse. So when you say you had your pasture tested, because not everybody will have done that. So what's, how do you go about uh, testing your pasture? Well, and this is the hard thing with rotational grazing is they're in a different pasture every three days. So <laughs> you right. know, I had to take that into account. What am I gonna test? When am I gonna test it? What time of day am I gonna test it? But so I send mine to the same place I send hay samples to, which is Equianalytical outside of, you know, I'm pretty sure it's associated with Cornell. And yeah. that's who I send my hay samples to every year when I get it back. And they do pasture samples as well. So I went out and I, I think they say five different locations. So I took my big five gallon bucket and I went out with a pair of scissors and I cut you know, a handful in one spot and I walked 20 feet and I cut another handful and got my various collections and then brought them back and mixed it all up and stuffed the required amount into a bag and put it in the freezer, which you're supposed to do before you ship it and then shipped it off and got the results back in just a couple of days, the way you do with your hay samples. Yeah. If it wasn't so expensive, I would do every single paddock every single time I put them through it. But it's, I think it's like $25 a piece. So I just thought, well, I'm going to do it once or twice and see how it goes. So I did the paddocks that they happened to be in that week. And I did it. I actually took it when, after I brought them in, because as I'm sure, you know, you know, the, the sugars go up as the day goes on. And so here's my real dilemma that I still can't figure out how to coordinate which is the best grazing time is also the best time to ride. <laughs> First thing in the morning, you know? Yes. And so previous years I've gotten up early. I get the horses done before I even do chores, before the bugs come out, before it gets hot and everybody's laughing at me because I just said it never gets higher than 86, but if it gets over 80, I'm unbearable. And then I'm, you know, I'm good for the day, but that's also the best time of day for them to be on grass. So yes. last summer, I actually, starting in June, bit the bullet and was getting up at four. And <laughs> that's the ideal time to turn them out. And I have a friend who has done that for years and years and years. And she, then she goes back to bed. And I really didn't think I would be able to, back, to go back to sleep. And I really don't sleep when I get back in bed, but I kind of at least rest for another half hour, yes, 45 yes, minutes. Yes. Um, so yeah, they the gates open at 4am and they go out. And so what I'm trying to tell myself is, you know, I'm like, <laughs> I look out the window and go, but they look so happy. I don't want to bring them in to work them now because look how happy they are out there. Yeah. So well, I, they can be happy at 4am. You know, I, there's uh, someone I know in Scotland who has an automatic gate opener well that's yeah it's on a timer that's and uh i mean it's brilliant because it's um sort of electric uh, uh wire uh you know how you have the electric wire with the the hook at the i'm not describing it handle. Very well. yeah the handle thank you and the uh timer when it goes off it opens some latch that is holding that handle and the handles are on the spring. So they just sort of spring back to the other side of the gate and her horses go out at 4 a.m. or whatever. And then at a civilized hour after she's had her morning tea, she can stroll out there and close the gate and say, you've had your grass, that's it. Brilliant. <laughs> See, that's what I want. I have fantasized about something like that, but I have wondered if I would ever have enough faith in mechanics not to get the gate part way open and so that my horses are then all 
jamming themselves through an opening that's too small. And I think I would be so nervous. I would wake up at 4 a.m. just to watch them go out and make sure that everybody got it. <laughs> well, this seems to work pretty reliably because it is, a, it's a spring. Yeah. So once once the handles are unhooked, they just go spring back where they And is this so the person design it themselves or is it commercially available? I would want to say that she did not design it herself. Mm but I could be mistaken. Yeah, that's what I, all I will say is they exist. Yeah. And that's exactly what I've envisioned, but our gates are big. And the other thing is, I mean, they are right there ready to go out. It's all, yes. all I can do to get the gate open and get out of the way. So I know mine would be doing that too. And they would hear that little tick of when it opened and they'd be right there ready to go out. So that's why yeah, yeah. it's the old pony club brandy. Yeah, Robin has a different system. He just comes and knocks on our door. Mm -hmm. You know, servant, it's it's 4 a.m. Actually, it's 3.30 in the morning, but I'm now desiring my grass. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, it's like, okay, on what we train. Yeah. So what would be some of the keys then that you would say are the difference that makes a difference in your pastures? The, the number of paddocks, you know, okay. I think, again, to give them that 30 day rest that they need. Okay. And, and, you know, the plant growth, you know, the botany of it is that, well, for one thing, horses are hard on pastures when you yes. compare them to the other two species we have, which are cattle and sheep, because horses have one toe and flat feet. So they, pack it a lot worse. They cause a lot more impaction than sheep, which have these dainty little feet with two sharp toes, you know, like your goats. So when yes. they're trampling along, they're making these nice little holes, which is exactly what a, what's the name of the machinery I'm thinking? Tiller. Um, yeah, but there's another one, the one they use before they put, when they do no-till seeding, kind of an aerator that goes yeah, along yeah. and drills you know, holes. Yeah. So those little holes for, you know, to water to get down in and seed to get down in and all that. So, so sheep sort of do that naturally and cows are big and heavy as well, but they've still got those two toes and horses have those flat feet. And the other thing that horses have, which are really hard on pastures compared to um, sheep and cattle are two sets of teeth. Yes. So, you know, your, your cattle and your sheep have a hard palate on top whereas your horses have two sets of teeth. So they get right down to the bottom of the ground and bite off there, leaving nothing. Whereas when the sheep and cattle do it, they tend to sort of, the grass kind of pulls through that, that, that yeah. closure a little bit better. So they don't graze anywhere near as close to the ground, providing they have enough pasture. I mean, they'll go back over and, right. over, and over it if they're limited in what their access is. So yeah, so, so I have to acknowledge that horses are going to do that. And I have one pony in particular who is, uh, you know, she'll go right behind somebody else and go, wait a minute, you didn't get the crumbs. Yes, yes. You left something behind. I'm not going to go eat that tall stuff. You left a little piece on you behind. So yeah, I've the Icelandics are like that. The Icelandics uh, were extraordinary because they will go out, put their heads down, and not move until they have completely. <laughs> I mean, they have just taken it down to golf course putting green quality. Yeah, and they do not. You know, they are. And they, cause they came from Iceland. So they know how, you know, you find every little bit that is there don't waste before you don't miss anything. Even though you might be in the midst of a great lush pasture, but don't miss out on anything. And, if, and it's, it's amazing when the grass is high to watch them. You know, if you go out and you squat down next to them, how those, those noses go right yes. down and sort out the clothes. It's like, how can you do that that fast? You know, there's this yes. great big orchard grass. I think I'm looking at a paddock full of orchard grass and they go, nope, there's clover down there and I'm going to find it and zoom right down in they go. So yeah, yeah they're very clever. So you want to, so what's going to happen is they're going to go in, they're going to graze it right down to the ground because that's the way they eat. And then 
within three to five days, that plant starts to regenerate and grow back up. And that's the sweet, sweet, sweet stuff. It's that, it's that yes. grass, you know, lawn that you see in so many paddocks and it's sweet and the horses love it and they eat it and eat it and eat it. Well, once it starts to regenerate, they're going to ignore all the big stuff and they're going to go right back in to that tiny little stuff that's coming up. And that tiny little stuff is never going to get a chance to take hold, develop its root systems, because it's constantly having anything exposed to photosynthesis wiped right off. So that's why you have to get them off that land after three to five days so that those plants that are coming back in have time to photosynthesize and grow roots and get bigger and stronger before you um, send the horses or whatever animal back in over them. So that's why the, the multiple paddocks are necessary. But as I say, you know, I've got six horses on four and a half acres and they've got, you know, in a 13 paddocks and, and they're plenty big enough for them. And one other thing about moving is that the way the paddocks are set up, they have alleys to get to them. So they have, you know, they can gallop out, those who like to do so, they can gallop out down the alleys and turn left down the next alley and then gallop out to the end of that paddock. So they get, you know, they've got more room to run that way if they want to. But really what they want to do is they want to go out and eat. So regardless of where they go, they eat. And they commune yeah. and they chew on each other and all that kind of good stuff and have a good time. And all six are out together. And there's, there's plenty of room, you know, there's no concern. Back when it was mob stocking, I used to put them on really small spaces. And I used to think, I'm glad my horses get along so well because they're really crammed into this tiny little paddock. And then I would move the fence 20 feet and it'd get another 20 feet. And honestly, I stopped doing that because it took too much time. You know, I, I said to my husband, I said, you can move fence twice a day if you want to, but if I've got 20 minutes at the end of the day, I want to work a horse. I don't want to, you know, be moving fence. So that's right. That's, that's right. when we like just two or three years ago, we cut up, cut it up so that we have, so in the winter, they have access to the whole four and a half acres. The whole thing is wide open because the perimeter fence is, um, is woven wire. So that's, you know, that's going to keep them in. It's going to keep wild animals out and they can go wherever they want. Then when summer comes is when I put up the alleys and the individual paddocks and start rotating them through. And the hardest, the hardest time is late May, early June when I can't let them out there because it's not good for them to be eating that tiny baby new grass and it's not good for the grass to have them you know, eating it down before it gets a chance to get started. That is the time of year that they're locked into the sacrifice paddock and standing at the gate saying, there's, we want out. And so I'm very relieved when it gets high enough that I go, okay, you can, you can go out now. And then after that, they're happy. So what, what kind of height, like how, what kind of height do you think is long enough? Like when do you make that judgment in the spring to let them back on the pasture? So the, what little I know and understand, the prime hay time, the prime nutritional value, that the sugar, the um, most mature, I don't even know how to say it. The ideal maturity for grass is what they call the boot stage. And that's when the seed head is just emerging from the stem. Okay, so I want it well past that. Okay, and that can be different heights. It depends on the, the fertility of the ground. It depends on how much moisture we've had that spring. You know, sometimes it'll do that if it's dry. I think it's if it's dry. It'll do that when the plants are really tiny because they're like, oh no, we're gonna dry up and we're gonna die so quick. We've got to make seed yeah. now as opposed to, you know, growing and um, getting a little further. So, so I try to look and 
I ask my husband, I say, is it ready to turn? You know, because I'm as bad with him as the horses are with me because they're out there banging on the gate and I come in and go, can I let them out yet? No, I won't do it yet. So <laughs> to uh, beg him and when he says he thinks it's safe is uh, when I will let them out. Yeah. So there are different, there are different areas that are going to grow faster than others. So I'll choose, like I, I used to let them out to the same, I used to do the same sort of rotation every year. And he said, you know, why don't you, you know, this is the paddock that always gets eaten first. Last year, he said, let's let that be the last paddock to get grazed this year. Turn them out on the other piece first, even though it might not. So there's one, my first alley is right here by the house. And it's where the, um, the sacrifice paddock drains. So all the a winter's worth of manure fluids just yeah. cascades down here and it's a virtual jungle. And so that's where I tend to let them out first. And he said, you know, even, I think it needs a break because you're seeing different stuff and it's getting washed out. He said, put them out somewhere else first this year. So last year they got put out on the other side first, even though it, it wasn't technically as, um, as tall as what was right the house but it was again that that rotating giving all the different plants different from day to day week to week month month and year to year different times for grains to grow so you, would you say then that you have a fairly biodiverse pasture um I, well i don't know because i don't know how how you would define that i mean we have as i say when we originally had there was a lot of wildflowers you know we had paintbrush there was, there was buttercup there was and then the two weeds that we really well the one weed that we really battle right now is bed straw which i think is all over new yes. England in the northeast right now yeah yeah and that's one that i spent time training them to eat last year with mixed results i need to try harder this year and then there's a canadian foxtail which just started moving in in the last couple of years so my husband was like, eventually he'd walk around the farm with his knife and just looking for where these little plants would emerge from the ground and he'd whack them off before they got to be too big. So there's those sorts of invasive species that have come in. We have a lot of, a lot of clover, um, a lot of orchard grass, a fair amount of Timothy and just, you know, bluegrass. So yeah, fairly. So, so what, would, what would you say in terms of some of the animals and the insect species that you see, because they're often an indicator of biodiversity. Yeah. When you go out there in the field, are you aware of a richness of insect life? The horses would say so, yeah. <laughs> in fact, Walter, my big thoroughbred, he's, he, he will literally graze with his head between Percy's hind legs because that puts okay. Percy's tail on top of his head uh, and yes, he follows yes. him wherever he goes. And thank, I don't know why Percy doesn't kick his head in, but his head is literally between Percy's hind legs as they go around the paddock. But yes, and you know, it's interesting when we first moved here, I was amazed that there were no, I couldn't hear any birds. It was completely quiet. And I thought this area is so remote and so wild. Why do we not hear more songbirds? Yeah. And now the songbirds are okay. everywhere. And so I think I think when we opened it up and you know have more grasses that have more seeds, the songbirds have moved in. So we yeah. have and we have mass, you know, we have uh the mosquito eaters. Why can I not say it? Swallows. Swallows. Barn swallows. We have massive amounts of barn swallows. And when they fledge, they line up on the porch railing. Yes. <laughs> a string of barn swallows. Yes. Lined up there. And we, we fledged over, and I lost count. I lost count after 75. Oh my we, God. we fledged at least 75 barn swallows from just, just the barn aisle last year. That's amazing. Well, and see, I don't, I don't, we had no mosquitoes. <laughs> yeah. And that was the other interesting thing. The first couple of years here, 
the the um, horse flies were horrific. I mean, I thought they were going to carry my ponies off. They were so big and so vicious. And again, I think it's because it was so wooded. You know, there's lots of moose, lots of deer around. Yeah. As high as we are, there's a beaver pond across the road. And so oh, I think fun. that all that wetness and those those animals, you know, just brought the worst off. And they haven't been as bad. I mean, they, you know, they're still here. They, they don't seem as bad. So yeah, lots of birds, lots of bugs. And then my dung beetles. My. Yes, tell us about the dung so beetles. pleased with my dung beetles that I didn't even know what they were at first until I told my husband. So dung beetles. Yes, that's our cliffhanger for this episode. Jane and I are both enchanted by dung beetles, but I'm going to make you wait until next time to find out why. Jane has certainly given me a lot to think about as I plan for this year's grazing rotation, and I hope it helps you as well. But I do feel as though at the end of this episode that I need to leave you with a disclaimer for both myself and Jane. You've heard Jane say that this is what she's done. She's put her elderly IR pony out on grass, and it's worked. But she's not saying to all of you to just go ahead and put your laminitic pony out on grass. Remember, Jane has done her research. She's not putting her horses out on rich cow grass. She's not turning them out on grass when sugars are at their peak. She's reporting on what she's done based on a lifetime of horse care and considerable research. I'm sharing what Jane has done because it's good to hear that there are alternatives to keeping your Cushing's and IR horses on dry lots. It may not be possible for all of you. You're going to have to do your own research and you're going to have to make your own decisions on what's best for your horses. You are solely responsible for the choices you make. Jane has shared what she is doing with her horses, and I hope you find it useful. But again, you need to do your own research and you need to make your own decisions. Jane and I are not responsible for any choices you make for your own horses and for your pasture management. I hope you find that the information she shared is of use. I hope it provides you with some alternative ways of thinking about your pasture management. I hope it helps you to produce really healthy, healthy pastures for both your horses and the planet. But always it is a study of one. And what is possible for Jane with her horses working in northern Vermont may simply not be possible for you with your horses in the environment that you're in. So do your research, do your homework, and I hope you have a really great result. Remember, we can all make a difference in the climate change crisis. Together, we're learning how. 